Let's start in Psalm 103 again, verse 1. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, and He satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like eagles. That passage alone ought to get you excited. It ought to get some amens going because we're talking about the Creator of all things taking care of us. That He is forgiving us of all of our sins and iniquity. He's forgiven us. That He heals our diseases. He redeemed our life from what would be destruction. I mean, you guys realize that where we are with God is all based off of what He has done for us. All of it. You know, the beautiful thing is is that there's nothing we can bring to the table to change this. One way or the other. Because this is an outflow of God's character. His character is one of love. Love not in this, you know, emotional, I feel love, all that kind of stuff. That He loved us while we were still sinners so that we could be the righteousness of God in Christ. It's for what He did. We should be so excited about that and so thankful that it affects our everyday life. question is, does it? Does that love of God that was poured upon us make us do things that are contrary to our human nature, our selfishness? We were talking about this a little bit this morning. Our, our human nature being selfish and looking out for ourselves and number one, you know, got to take care of me and not putting our faith and trust in God. We can do that for our salvation, but the other things that we do, do it with, we kind of struggle. When it comes time to give money, it is against the common practice to give away your hard-earned money, right? I mean, let's face it, we worked hard for the money. It's not just a great song. That was a joke. Okay, fine. Tough crowd. I'll try, I'll try you guys later, right? Everybody in this room has worked hard for their money with the exception of maybe Stan. Stan, I mean, he just works between his naps. You know, it's okay. Another joke, guys. Keep up with me. You guys are tough today. I'll, I'll, we'll get you going. We'll get the pump primed here. The thing is, is that when it comes time to give, it is contrary to the nature of, of, of human beings, but yet giving is who God is. He gave His Son, right? He, as God, gave Himself on our benefit. And yet when we come and we give, it's an opportunity of a part of our worship to do that for Him. Saying, I trust you. That idea of first fruits and tithing and all that other stuff is an outflow of, I'm putting my trust in God. I don't care what's going on. I'm going to put my trust in God. And so when we do that with salvation, yeah, okay, fine, no big deal. Because it doesn't hurt. Yeah, I can give my soul to you, Lord, and you can save it. How do we do that? Well, we should follow the Bible, but we don't. We've got all of these rules and regulations that we try to make up. We have people, I just heard this this week, that God is love and God does not hate sins. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. You know, sometimes on on Facebook, it's hard to stay quiet. Well, they obviously didn't. But but the, the thing was, is that it's, where do we get these ideas about God? We created God in our image. That's what we do. We allow what's happening around us to influence the God that we worship. We question whatever happened to the power of God. I'll tell you, when you become the God of your life, you have no power. You see, you don't have power over sin. You don't have power to create wealth. You don't have power for life. You have what God has given you. That's it. You see, when you put your faith, hope, and trust in God, it's very easy to, no matter what the circumstances and situations are, I will just sit back and I will allow God to take care of this. That I know that no matter what, His grace is sufficient for me. We go through hard times, we go through trials, we go through struggles at times. 
but God's grace is sufficient for me. You know, when we, when we sit here and we look at this, and we're looking at the area of healing specifically, what's happened is theologians through the years have created a God in the image of which they think that they see happening, and thus that is the God that they worship. They have taken His character and changed it into something that fits more of the world around them. It's no different than when somebody says, well, God is love and He doesn't hate sins. He loves everybody. He made them that way. I think you guys know what I'm talking about. Why do they say that? Well, because they have a loved one living a lifestyle that is against God. They have to. The, the statement that God, that we should love the sinner, hate the sin, you realize that that's not in the Bible? You know who said that? Gandhi. It's a quote from Gandhi, not from Scripture. So every time you've quoted that, you're quoting Gandhi. Now, is it a true statement that God hates the sin? He loves the sinner. That is a true statement. How do we know that? God hates sin so much and loves the sinner so much that He made a way that we don't have to be under the bonds of sin or the reproach of sin any longer. He's taken that away from the midst of us. So when we tie this into what we've been talking about on healing, we've been talking about the idea of cessationism, where the gifts of the Spirit no longer exist. God does not move. He is up there. He's on His throne. The only thing He does today is drop the hammer every now and again. Right? I mean, Jim was telling me, I think it was last week, he was saying that he heard a, a preacher say that all this flooding is judgment from God because of uh, our stance on abortion. The ironic thing is, if that's true... God flooded the wrong states. Because I can give you some that you can flood. You'd probably get all of them. They'd be fine. You flooded the wrong states. How can you make a statement like that? That's, that's irresponsible. Irresponsible. But the bottom line is, is that we've got to deal with this kind of thing. Why are these disasters happening? Why, why is this stuff going on? Well, we can't answer that if we can't uh, look at Scripture and say, okay, well, what, what are the patterns here? You see, if God doesn't move on our benefit, why does He move against us? Does that make sense? You guys follow me on that? You see, we've taken this idea of cessationism, and we've, we've, that God doesn't move, He's kind of up there. It's this idea of deism, that He is up there, that he, you know, God no longer heals, that uh, prophecy no longer exists, all this other stuff. And because we've had some bad things happen in the church, and I say big C church, some weird things that have gone on, some things that are contrary to Scripture, that we're going to lump everybody in there together, and therefore God doesn't do it because I don't like it. Which is no different than saying that God hates sin, or doesn't hate sin, because I don't like that God. I want God to love me the way that I am, and just accept me for who I am. The thing is, is He doesn't have to do that. He created everything. He makes the rules. So then we have this other side that we came to. Okay, yeah, sometimes God heals, but sometimes He doesn't, and we don't know what His will is. It's the same thing as sometimes God saves, and sometimes He doesn't, and the only way we can know if it was God's will to save you is if you got saved. And the only way we can know if it's God's will to heal you is if you got healed. But if you didn't, then it wasn't. And if you didn't get saved, then you weren't in God's will, and therefore you're damned for all eternity. It's, it, it, it makes absolutely no sense. But we've gone that direction because why? Well, we've got to be able to explain what we're seeing around us. I don't know about you, but when I see something happening that is outside of God's character, I don't blame God. I look in the mirror and say, okay, God, where am I missing it? Because if God's the same yesterday, today, and forever, which He claims to be, 
then what is going on? What do we do with that? Well, we began to look at this last week and looking at the idea of sometimes it's God's will to heal, other times it's not God's will to heal, all of that kind of stuff. Looking at it from a scriptural standpoint. We've gone through different passages that we looked at. The idea of that, that Paul left Trophimus sick. You guys remember that? We talked about that. And the fact that he told Timothy to mix a little wine with his water. You know, all of that kind of stuff. And it's like, okay, what, what do we do with those? Well, we can answer those questions, right? If you guys remember, we talked about it. The same word for sick with Trophimus is the same word for weak. That he left him behind, weak, tired, worn out. Remember, Jesus took naps. That is the will of God. I know it's hard to convince your toddler of that, but it is the will of God. Isn't it amazing how life goes full circle? That when you're a kid, you fight naps for all that you can, and that when you're an adult, you fight work to get your naps for all that you can? It kind of goes around. So we see that, and then we jumped into Daniel with the idea of Jadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Did they know that God was going to save them? The popular teaching is they had no idea if he was, but I showed you, as we just look at the passage carefully and don't bring our presuppositions to it, you see, the reason everybody believes that is because they've been taught it their entire life, so when they quickly read through that, they're not studying, they're scanning. We already know what's going to happen, therefore we read it. That's not studying, guys. That's already holding to a truth. So then we go and we look at that and we say, okay, what do we do with that? Well, obviously, that they can't bow down if God doesn't rescue them. That wasn't what was that question. The question was, is not whether God would save them or not. The question was, is whether they were going to get thrown into that fiery furnace or not. That was the question. If they weren't, I don't care. I will not bow down. You see, they're standing on truth. They knew God's will. And the question is, can we? Can we know God's will? The answer has to be yes. Because Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus was standing there praying to the Father, getting ready to go to the cross, he says, God, let your will be done. You see, we have these idea of what God's will is all throughout Scripture. So we have to be able to know what God's will is. If we don't know that whether it's God's will to save somebody, then why would we share the gospel with them? If we don't know whether it's God's will to heal somebody, why would we pray for them? You see, those ideas don't come from Scripture. They come from outside of Scripture, and then we cram them in there and say, boy, you see how this says that? That's not what it says. So now I want to begin to look at this a little, a little bit different, because we're going to go into the area of, is it God's will to heal all the time? I'm going to give you the answer. The answer is yes. Now certainly we do not see that happen all the time. And we'll begin to look at maybe reasons why that we see that. But the, not, that's not at, at stake here. The question is, is it God's will to heal all the time? So let's back up. Is it God's will that everybody should find everlasting life in, their, in His Son, Jesus? Yes, it is. Is there anybody out there that God does not want in heaven with Him? No. Will everybody come to faith in Christ? No, they won't. So we see that here, it's very obvious, it's God's will that all be saved. But we know that all won't be saved. Why can we not apply that same logic to healing? Not everybody will. There's reasons, but it's not on God. God's made a way. And we're going to go through that and we're going to look at that. I'm going to address something today that I have addressed, I did it a couple of years ago, but I want to bring it up again. Because I reference it frequently, and I know not everybody was here, and not everybody understands. But when we read the life of Jesus in the New Testament, we see Him performing miraculous signs and wonders. 
But those were not just haphazard, I'm just cruising along, and then this person hits me up. Sure, I'll do that. They were all very strategic. They were what we call the messianic miracles. And I want to go through this again. For some of you, this is going to be a recap. For others of you, this is going to be new information. But I want to share this with you today because I want everybody on the same page going forward because this is very important. So, it was a Jewish belief that there were four conditions that only God could heal. Now, there were things that, that the Jews could do. There was healing. There was casting out of demons. There was all sorts of stuff. But there were certain things that only God could do Himself. Here is that list. Let's take a look at this. The first one is cleansing a leper. And I'll explain this here in detail in a minute. The next one, casting out a deaf and dumb spirit. That means that they cannot hear and they cannot talk. We're not talking about their IQ. Okay? Now, if those spirits are from Iowa, we'd be talking about their IQ. There's only one Iowa family. We're good. You guys are the exception. Way to bring up the bar for everybody else. The next one is the healing of birth defects. And the third one is the raising from the dead after three days. And an example is the fourth day. You see, the Jews believed that they could do just about every one of these. Go ahead and go back to that, please. The one that they, they, they had a hard time with is they couldn't cleanse a leper because they believed that God gave that to them. And I'll show you that here in a minute. They also did believe they couldn't cast out a deaf and dumb spirit, but they could cast out demons. But they had to be able to get the name of the demon in order to do it. Okay? The third one was the healing of birth defects that only God could do that because the reason that they were born with whatever, whether it be blind or lame or whatever, is because God put that on them as a result of sin of the child or sin of the parents. Okay? And then the last one is the raising of the dead after three days. See, they believe that the spirit of an individual stayed with the body up to three days. But after the fourth day that the body has decomposed, the spirit leaves the body. They believe that they could, under the power of God, resurrect the dead up to that point. But on day four, only God could do that Himself. This is the power of the Messiah. Remember, they're waiting for thousands of years for the Anointed One, Christ, the, the, the Anointed One, the Messiah, to come. So what would happen, and I'm laying the groundwork for this as we go through this, is that if somebody performed a miracle that they believe fit this criteria, that they, you know, whether it be suspected of it, they heard about it, whatever the case may be, they would report it to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was kind of like the Supreme Court. You had the mixtures of the different sects of Judaism, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, the Herodians. You had all of these guys in there. At the time of Christ, the Pharisees were in power. So it is both political and religious. That's what's going on. They would come to them and they would report it. Then they would go and um, investigate it. And there was two part of that but no individual could ever declare that this was the messiah it had to be a unanimous vote from the sanhedrin to declare somebody the messiah can you see any problems with that can you get a group of church folks together to agree on hardly anything we will argue and fight tooth and nail over paint colors I think I've told you this story, but I had a friend of mine who uh, took over a very, very small church in Arkansas. The town had like 80 people. The coffee pot broke. It took them six weeks to agree to buy another one because one lady was concerned that the coffee pot said bun on it. Yeah. 
So can you imagine you have these different sects of Judaism in power in the Sanhedrin. Remember, the Pharisees were the legalists. They believed in the law and the Torah and the written word. And the Sadducees, they believed in some of that, but they didn't believe in the supernatural, the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in the angels. And so here, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, unless you use Lazarus as an example, that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, that didn't really happen. Therefore, he's not the Messiah. Therefore, they'd never come to an agreement. It was impossible. So what would happen is that when, when one of these things were reported, because the Pharisees were at power, they would send a Pharisee or a group of them out to investigate. The first stage of the investigation was the observation stage. They would just stay back and watch and say nothing. They would just kind of see what was going on. They weren't permitted to ask any questions at all or to comment in any way. They simply followed the individual, they listened, and then they would report the findings back to the Sanhedrin. Then, at that point, if the case warranted it, then they would go into the interrogation stage where they would begin to question this stuff, question the individual that possibly could be the Messiah. There's still a lot of this stuff that they are expecting today with the Jews waiting for their Messiah. They're expecting a political leader. Remember that they were waiting on two separate Messiahs. One would be the suffering, uh, suffering servant. The other one would be the crowning king. And through time, they began to believe that they were the suffering servant because of all the suffering that they had done through the years. Now, if you know your scriptures, we know why that they suffered. It wasn't because they had to. It was because they chose to. God was very clear. If you do these things, you're going to be great. If you don't, you won't. What do you guys want to do? They agreed to the terms, and then they broke the terms immediately. So you guys following me so far? Is everybody with me so far and understand? I know I said a lot of stuff. But the bottom line is, and if you're thinking and you know your New Testament pretty well, you can think back of all the times of what Jesus is always dealing with the Pharisees. They're always grilling him. They're always doing something. That's what was going on. That gives you the backstory. So let's talk about leprosy, the first one. The healing and cleansing of a leper. Leprosy was believed to be inflicted by God himself. That it was called and given by the finger of God. And the reason they believed that, because there were three incidents of leprosy affecting Israelites in the Old Testament. So, let's look at Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. This is where the first one comes from. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me, or listen to my voice. Suppose they say that the Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it. And therefore uh, it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, put your hand in your bosom again. And he put his hand in his bosom again, and he drew it. Out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like his other flesh. Now, Moses is using this. He's getting ready to go to Pharaoh to let my people go. He's getting ready to, to go and start the release of the Israelites out of Egypt. And he gives him these first two initial signs. One was the rod. The other one was the leprous hand. Who gave Moses the leprosy? God did. He put it in his cloak. He'd pull it out. Surprise. He'd put it back in. It would come out. It was gone. It was meant to signify something to the Egyptians, also to the Israelites. So, where do they get the idea that God gives leprosy? Well, this is one part, but there are others. There's somebody named Miriam in Numbers 12. This is after they've exited. They're now uh, heading towards the promised land. Look at this. 
Then Miriam and Aram spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. And he had married an Ethiopian woman. So they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not also spoken through us? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So they're going to the tabernacle. So the three came out. Then the Lord came down to the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both went forward and he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is a faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he says the form of the Lord. He sees the form of the Lord. Then why then there were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So the anger of the Lord was aroused against him, and he departed. And when he and the cloud departed from the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. Then Aaron turned toward Miriam, and, and there she was, a leper. So Aaron and Moses said, O oh my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us, in which we have done foolishly and in which we have sinned. Please do not let her be as one dead, whose flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, Please heal her, O God, I pray. Then the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would not she be shamed seven days? That's a law thing that's going on there. Let her be shut out of the camp seven days, and afterwards she may be received again. So Miriam was shut out of the camp seven days, and the people did not journey till Miriam was brought, out, brought in again. And afterward, the people moved from Hazareth and camped to the wilderness of Paran. All right, so what's going on here? You've got to remember that Moses was God's man, and he spoke to Moses face to face. He talked about in other prophets, I go through dreams, and they're kind of blurry pictures that you've got to put together. But with Moses, he's very clear exactly what he expects and what he wants done. And so Moses has a relationship with God unlike anybody else at this time. And so God speaks with him face to face, leading, directing, telling him what to do. They've got all the signs and the different things going on. And so Miriam and Aaron, getting a little frustrated speak out against him. And as judgment, because they should not have been questioning God's man here, as judgment, Miriam is struck with leprosy. And what do they do? They immediately repent. And Miriam is put out seven days, which was the law, and at the end of those seven days, she was made whole and brought back into camp. How do we know that? It doesn't say that, because that's the only way it works. According to the law, all lepers had to stay away from somebody for, uh, until they were declared clean by the high priest. So they would go away, they'd have to stay, and if anybody was coming near them, they would have to yell out, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. Because remember, that you could not touch a leper or make you unclean, and then you would have to ritually cleanse to become pure. I know it's a lot to take in, I don't want to get into the weeds on that, but that's what's going on. And so because of that, she's put out for seven days, at the end of the seven days she would present herself to the high priest, he would declare that she is clean. Okay, That's the only way she's welcomed back into the camp. That's how we know that because that's the backdrop of the story. Now we see it one more time with King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him were eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, 
who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah became furious and had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord, besides the incense altar. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all priests looked at him, and there on his forehead he was leprous. So they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he also hurried to get out because the Lord had struck him. King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Then Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Uzziah overstepped his boundaries and his authority. As a king, you did not act as a priest. A priest had the authority overneath the tabernacle, in this case the temple, and they would go in there and they would burn incense. Uzziah was coming in there and usurping that authority, and he was struck with leprosy because of it. You guys see why they get this idea that God strikes with leprosy. This is where it came from. These passages, they're all times that God used leprosy. All right? Uzziah was not healed of it because he likely wasn't repentant of it. Now let's look at one more, Naaman, 2 Kings chapter 5. Verse 1, now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria. So are we dealing with the Israelites here? No, it's a Syrian. That means he's a Gentile. He was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who was from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter, that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive, that this man sends to me a man to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. The king doesn't trust him. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Remember, this is something that they did when they're completely distressed. Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the place, and heal the leprosy. And are not the Abna and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be cleaned? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. He was clean. So, and then later on he tries to offer Elisha all sorts of money for doing such a thing, and he doesn't. That's why all the talents of gold and the talents of silver, that was a lot of cash. That was a lot of cash. And so Elisha couldn't be bought. Now, this is a foreshadowing that's going on here of God bringing the Gentiles into the fold. Uh, but there's something more over than that. There is no biblical record of an Israelite ever having been completely cleansed of leprosy with the exception of Miriam. What happened with her? Lepers were condemned by God to live in shame. Here we have an example of one that has leprosy. He's a Syrian who is an enemy of God. That is why the king doesn't trust him. Now, they kind of had a, a quote-unquote peace treaty going on at that point. 
But this man had a respect for the God of Israel, as did the king. And so when he went, he gets irritated because he's waiting on Elisha. Elisha, wave your hand over me. Do these great things. Let God come down from heaven and heal me. And what does Elisha say? Go jump in the Jordan seven times. You need seven baths. And then you'll be clean. It's like our kids, right? Sometimes you don't get all that dirt on the first time. And he's irritated because why? It's not supernatural enough. It's not spectacular enough. We need something more. And yet he came out clean because he was obedient to the word of the man of God. So, this is why they call this the finger of God. Because only God can take this away. And they believe that God put this on them. Now, we see this happen in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, And it happened when he was in a certain city, they're talking about Jesus, that behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus and fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You notice he doesn't say healed. He says clean. Why does he use that word? We think healing, but leprosy made them unfit to go to the temple because they were ceremonially unclean. So the healing and the cleansing, which gave them the right to worship, were unanimous. They were tied together. Then he put out his hand and he touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. However, the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. Now watch what happened. You've got to understand this. Think of the backdrop of the Old Testament. No leper would ever approach a Jewish man, ever. When one came near them, they'd have to yell, I'm unclean. Because remember, if they got near them and they touched them, it would make that individual unclean. And then they would have to go and wash in what we call mikvah. They would mikvah in those washing pools and all of that had to be with living water. But this man came to Jesus. Why did he come to Jesus? How did he know that he could make him clean? Because this man believed that this was the Messiah. Already, he came to him in faith. He said he put out his hand and he touched him after he asked him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I am willing. You notice what Jesus didn't do. Let me check with the Father. Let me see if it's his will. He didn't say that. At no time will you ever see Jesus say, I am unwilling because it is not God's will for you to be healed. There's never an example of that. You never see an example of that in Scripture at all. When it comes to the New Testament and the Holy Spirit and all that other stuff, you never see that. Jesus cleansed him. Then you see what he says. You've got to go show yourself to the priest, because only the priest can declare him king or clean. Right? That's what we're talking about. That is still the rules. That was still that old covenant. And then they had to make an offering. This would be a guilt offering, a burnt offering. If a leper was cleansed and he was ever declared cleansed, then he would have to go in there and he would make this offering. So, this is the same idea in Isaiah 53.10. It says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and he has put him to grief, when you make his soul an offering for sin. And she, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What kind of offering? It was the offering, a guilt offering, that brought cleansing to the individual. 
You see, Jesus became that sacrifice. We'll go into Isaiah 53 more at a later day. But the bottom line is this, is this is exactly what Isaiah was talking about. This guilt offering. He went and became cleansed. Now, since no Israelite leper had ever been cleansed in that sense, it sparks an investigation by the Sanhedrin. Because he goes and declares it, and everybody knew who did it. So what happened there? They would begin to investigate. You guys see that? This is the idea of leprosy. Only the Messiah can do that. And I don't want to spend all day on this kind of stuff, but the bottom line is you see other things where that same stuff happens when it deals with leprosy. Right? Now the next one is the deaf and dumb spirit, the casting them out. Jews practice exorcism. They could cast out demons, but they had a formula. It was a three-step formula. First, they had to speak to the demon, and they had to get its name. Then the demon would reply usually using the voice of the possessed individual. And the last thing is the exorcist, the individual, would cast out the demon by its name. Okay, That was the formula. That's how it worked. So Jesus uses this formula in Mark chapter 5, verse 1. Then they came to the other side of the sea of the country of the Gadarenes, and when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there in the mountains. And so all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission, and then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd, uh, the herd ran violently down the steep place in the sea and drowned in the sea. So what just happened? The price of bacon went up. Not really. They're Jews. They don't eat pork. They don't know what they're missing out on. Thank God we are redeemed from the curse of the law, right? All right. But we see this come into practice. Jesus asked for the name of the demon. This was a Jewish practice. This man spoke. If they couldn't get the name, then they couldn't cast it out because they did not know who or what they were addressing. Now, this is still used by some today. That they'll, you'll, don't go on YouTube. But if you were to go on YouTube, you'll see all sorts of funky things going on. Or they're like, give me your name. What is your name? And you'll hear scratchy voices or whatever. And they'll say whatever. And then they'll say, you need to vomit this demon up. Um, I didn't realize that the demons caused such indigestion. And that's where they were. They're hanging out in your stomach. But whatever. So... Jesus referred to the exorcism practiced by the Pharisees. He said the same thing in Matthew 12, 27. If I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do you drive them out? He's, he's getting on them because they're accusing them. But the Jews could do exorcism. But what they couldn't do is cast out a deaf and a dumb spirit. Because if it can't hear and it can't speak, then you don't know who you're dealing with and you can't cast it out. But in Mark chapter 9, so we're just moving up a little bit, a few chapters. Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them, and the scribes disputing with him. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Remember, the scribes are part of the Sanhedrin and this, this Pharisees group. Then one of the crowd answered, said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. 
And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down, he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. What does that sound like? Sounds like a seizure. So I spoke to your disciples that you should cast it out, but they could not. And he answered to him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. And so he asked his father, How long has this been happening? And his father said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciple asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said, This kind can come out by, by nothing but prayer and fasting. And we're not going to get off into that tangent today, but the bottom line here is an example. The scribes, he came to the disciples, they're all there. They're investigating Jesus. They're seeing what's going on. And he asked them, What have you been telling these people? And here you have a demon that they cannot ask the name. They've attempted to. He's gone. He's taken everything he knows to do. This thing has tried to kill the boy multiple times. And when it sees Jesus, what does it do? It throws him on the ground. He begins convulsing. I mean, this is some crazy stuff, right? This is right out of the movie The Exorcist, minus the head spinning and projectile vomiting. So we, we see this going on. And what does Jesus say? He doesn't care what the name is, because it doesn't matter. But he rebukes the thing, and it comes out of him, and it says, come into him no more, and he's immediately set free by it. Now, this is going to cause some uproar, because only the Messiah can do this. How many times has this father taken his son to the Pharisees, to the leaders, and they've been unable to do anything? The, the, the exorcist of the time. Only the Messiah can do that. This is why these details are in here. When you don't know the background, you miss out on the nuances. But you notice what, what the man said. There was never a question of whether Jesus could do this. He knew. He knew that Jesus could do it. All right, let's look at the third one. So, all the Hebrew sages believe that all birth defects were given as a punishment from God, as I said, from the sin of the child, his parents, his ancestors, whatever. It was the belief that was based upon two scriptures. One of these you guys are going to be very familiar with. Exodus 34, verse 5, it says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood the, him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now we hear the idea of generational curses. I will tell you that this idea is, is not what is going on here. We've, we've kind of misunderstood that. But again, that's for another day. Also in Exodus 4, verse 11, it says, The Lord said to him, Who has made this man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? So you see, this is God who does this. Based off of these couple of passages, they reason that since it was punishment from God, that only God himself could correct these things. Only God could. So if the Messiah comes and there's somebody who is born blind, somebody who born from birth could not stand up and walk, 
Only God could do that. There were miracles that could happen, but only the Messiah himself could do that. So to look at this, we're going to jump into John chapter 9. Keep that in the back of your mind, the belief, the thought that only the Messiah could do this. One thing you need to know is that this is during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And remember that this is just after the fact that Jesus had stepped into the temple during the Feast of the Tabernacle on the last and great day where the high priest pours out the water from the pool of Siloam, pours it onto the altar, and says, this is the living water. And Jesus shows up and says, I am the living water. He also says that I am the light of the world. Remember, during the Feast of Tabernacles, they erected these large uh, torches, basically 70 feet tall. It was called the light of the world because all the world could see where the temple was based off of that. They didn't have street lights. So that's what's going on here. This is the context. John chapter 9, verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Why did they put that, that detail in there? Why didn't he just say he was blind? Why does he always give these extra details that really doesn't matter? Because do you care that he was blind from birth or that he just had an accident and he was blind? No, what do we care about? He gets healed. That's all we care about. There is a reason that these details are here. So never jump ahead. Never just assume that, oh, that doesn't matter. It matters. It's there for a reason. This man was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Why are they asking that? Because they believed that either the child had sinned or the parents had sinned because of this idea that was out there. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. So don't you know that God put this on him so that Jesus could heal him? Isn't that what's going on here? That's not what he's saying. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he said these things... He spat on the ground, and he made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. So far, so good. Again, I know we've talked about this, but you know, if, if you're going to hack a loogie and make mud and put it on somebody's face, you better hear from God. All right? Because you can get away with it if they come back seeing. If not, we may need to talk about that. But there's a whole lot going on. Verse 8, Therefore the neighbors of those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is this not he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, Well, it's somebody like him. But he pipes up, he says, It's me. Therefore he said to him, How were your eyes opened? Why did they say that? Because that's not what happens. You were born with that for a reason. It was punishment from God. He answered and said, a man called Jesus, he made clay and anointed my eyes, which just means to cover his eyes, and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And so I went and I washed and I received sight. Now you may think that's a great act of faith, but there's two things going on. One, the man's desperate. Two, he has mud on his face and his pool of Siloam is pretty close. So he's got to wash it off. Well, they said to him, well, where is he? He said, I don't know. And they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now, why did they do that, guys? It's because they are presenting something. If you don't know that they're expecting this to only be something that the Messiah can do, it doesn't make sense why they would bring him to the Pharisees. But that is why that's happening. Verse 14, Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put clay on my eyes, I washed, I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Remember, they can do no work on the Sabbath, and therefore, making mud out of spit is work. Putting it on a man's eyes is work. Pushing the button on the elevator is work. 
You go over there on the Sabbath today, the elevator stops on every floor on the Sabbath because they can't push the buttons against the law. Alright? So, verse 16, Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he did not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them because they can't deny the sign. But he's a sinner, so therefore he can't do this. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? And he said, well, he's a prophet. Does he know he's the Messiah? Not necessarily. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. So they thought he was lying. This is a, a ploy. And they asked him saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? And his parents answered and said, we know that this is our son and we know that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He's of age. Ask him. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. Now, who are we referencing here? The Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, all of these guys. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that Jesus was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. The synagogue is the lifeblood of the cities. It's kind of like the old, the church was kind of the place where everybody met years ago. That was the synagogue. They don't want to be put out. If they confess in any way, the Jews had already made this agreement that if anybody says that he's the Christ, they don't get to come no more. We're excommunicating them. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, you ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. Why do they think he's a sinner? One, they don't like him. And two, is that he did something on the Sabbath that they don't think that he should. And he answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, I was blind and now I see. And then they said to him again, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already, you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? I love this next line. Do you also want to become his disciples? I love that. I just love that. Verse 28, then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciple. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. And a man answered and said to them, why? This is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of anyone who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Nobody who was born blind had their eyes open. Only God could do this. Only the Messiah. The answer said to them, you were completely born in sins and you are teaching us. So why did they make that statement? They believed that he was born in sin, and that's why God put this on him. And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered, he said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking to you. And then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Now, the man had no idea who Jesus was. All he knew is what Jesus had done. And it was one of the signs that they were waiting for. And he believed as a result of one of the signs that he was waiting for. Now verse 39. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world. Uh-oh. Remember, we don't judge. Jesus didn't judge anybody. And yet here he said that that's why I came. Why did he, what is he judging? That those who do not see may see. And that those who may see be made blind. Now that's not talking about eyesight here. Some of the Pharisees said, who were with him heard these things. Why are they with him? They're still investigating him. 
said to him, are we blind also? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. What's he talking about? You're refusing to see what is right in front of you. He said, I am the light of the world. I, as long as I'm here, I am the light. And people will see the light. You see another place he said people hate the light and they run to the darkness. For judgment I've come into the world that those who do not see may see and those who see may be made blind. Who is he talking about? He is talking about the Pharisee. Because it's not that they don't see. It's that they refuse to see. Now this is all during the Feast of Tabernacles that's going on. He performs this miracle during this time. There's a, the ritual is the joy of the water drawing where they, they dip those pitchers in there. And I told you guys that. But they go to the pool of Siloam. It was called the fountain of cleansing. And they pour it on the altar. This is the same water. This is the same thing. This is very, very messianic. They were waiting on this. You guys understanding this so far? That's why they're always grilling him. That's why they're always looking at this stuff. And that's why they're always hanging around him. Is because they're investigating him. So we've gone through three, but what did you see? It was always God's will. This was the plan. God knew what he was doing. There's never a time where somebody approaches God that he is not willing to act on their behalf. The last one, raising the dead after the third day. Remember what I said. They believed that a spirit of the man stayed with the body for three days, but after that, that the spirit would leave and that the, the corruption of the flesh would set in. In other words, they would start to decompose and, uh, and start to smell bad because they didn't have all these wonderful preservatives in their food like we do today, you know, where we can, uh, we can lay there and not rot for weeks at a time. But this is the final sign and the proof of his messiahship. And in performing the sign of raising the dead on the fourth day, it would force the Sanhedrin to have no choice but to declare Jesus the Messiah. Is that what happens? No, it's not. Let's look at this. In John chapter 11, verse 1, we're going to read the entire chapter here. A certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her, uh, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, whom you love is sick. So does he love Lazarus? Absolutely. He loves Mary and Martha as well. And Jesus heard that. He said, the sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now we can get some really bad theology here. Some people die at a young age for the glory of God. Is that what it says? It's not what it says. What's the glory of God? In the resurrection. The sickness is not unto death. He's going to heal him of the sickness, the glory of God. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he had heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Well, that makes sense. Here you have the ability to heal an individual. And so you get word of somebody whom you love is sick. So you hang out for two more days. Does that sound right? No, if you get word of somebody that you love is sick, most of you immediately stop what you're doing and go to them. And we're talking sickness unto death. We're not talking they got a head cold. We're not talking that you know they got a bad rash. We're talking that they are going to die. That is what was sent to Jesus. Jesus is not worried because he hangs out for two more days. Then after this, verse 7, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you are going there again. Who are the Jews that they keep referencing? It is always part of that Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus answered, are not 
Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he is not stumbled because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not with him. Therefore, these things he said, and after he said them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Okay, verse 12, his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. You ever pick up on how dense these guys were? Like, it seems as if they just never understand. However, Jesus spoke of his death, that, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. So he's going to spell it out for him. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Now, guys, this is a bizarre statement if you don't know why he said it. And you do because I told you why. It's this fourth day thing. Why would it be to their benefit that they don't go to him while he's still alive? Why wait? I am glad for your sake that I was not there, that you may believe. Believe in what? Then Thomas said, who is called the twin and to his disciples, let us go that we may die with him. Talking about Jesus because they think Jesus is going to get stoned. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb how many days? Four days. Remember what he did. He waited too. Right? Okay. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. They're there. It's kind of like a wake. He died. They're there comforting them. Martha, as soon as she'd heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Because they are waiting on the resurrection of all the dead. That's an Old Testament principle. That's not a New Testament one. At the, when the, on that great day when Jesus returns, that the dead in Christ will rise first. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but he was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, that's the second time that statement has been made. Is that a true statement? Absolutely. They knew that Jesus could heal him. There was no doubt. There was no, you notice he didn't say, Jesus, if you had been here and it had been your will. It was a true statement that if Jesus had been there, brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. Why? He's moved with compassion. Even though he knows what's about to happen, he's moved with compassion. He hurts for these people. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? What is he talking about? Wait a minute. He performed the one... Couldn't he have healed this guy? Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a, 
it was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister whom, uh, of him who was dead, and using her all practicality here, said, uh, Lord, by this time, there's a stench. And he's been dead four days. You notice that's twice now that it makes a very good point that it is the fourth day. The reason for that is what's about to happen. Jesus said, did I not say that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Why? Because he's about to prove it with the last miracle. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with the grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Why did they do that? They are reporting a miracle. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? Now watch the reaction. For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What is their motivation? It is not finding the truth. It is keeping what they had going alive. If we, if we let this go on, people are going to believe that he's the Messiah. Only we can declare that. And we will not. You see, that those who see may be made blind. And that those who are blind may see. That's what Jesus was talking about. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Now that's interesting that the high priest gave a prophecy that this Jesus would die on behalf of the people, and yet they're ignoring it. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from the, uh, there into the country near the wilderness, the city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near. And many went from the country up to the Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? that he will not come to the feast. Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone know, knew where he was, they should report it, that they might see him. You guys, this are, these are the messianic miracles. Now why am I sharing all of this with you? Because that is the backdrop of the miracles that Jesus performed. That is the reason that they went. That is the reason that the Pharisees were always hanging around them. But it was always for the benefit of the people you notice that there's never a time that they did not expect that the Messiah would perform these. And even though the Messiah was performing those, they still tried to deny it. But these miracles were the linchpin. Look at that last one. He said, it is for your benefit that I have waited. And then he goes on that fourth day. You see, this is the work of Jesus. This is why that they should have believed and didn't. But the question was never whether it was God's will or whether that God could. It was always expected. And Jesus confirmed that every time he did it. Now, I want to read one last verse to you, but remember John the Baptist who said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
He is the one that will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. I baptize in water. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he's in prison and getting ready to be headed and he knows what it is. And he's going through a, a tough time, a time of doubt. But look at what Luke 7.22 says. He sends his disciples there to Jesus saying, are you really the one? Are you the one that we've been waiting for or should, one, or should there be somebody else that we expect? And Jesus said, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who are leprosy is cured, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. What did he just spell out? I've done them all. Those are the miracles. You see, this is all throughout Scripture. You go and find me a time where somebody approached Jesus or approached the apostles after Jesus is gone, where it was never God's will to heal them. You can find it, I'll buy you a candy bar. Because you won't find it. You can buy me a candy bar. But there are other ones. See, guys, we've got to think about this. Why did they have such a confident expectation when they approached Jesus? Was it the signs? Or was it the fact that they knew what the Word said about the Messiah? Where did their faith come from? You see, there had been other Messiah figures that had come, come on the earth. This wasn't the first one that, that was making that claim. But this is the first one that lined up with the Scriptures. So next week, we're going to look at this a little deeper. One of which is the woman with the issue of blood. She comes to Jesus and said, if I can only touch the hem of His garment, I'll be made whole. Don't you wish it was that simple? Just show up, grab my ankle, you'll be fine. How did she know? Why did she do that? That doesn't make any sense. There's a backdrop to that, and I'm going to get into that next week, and we're going to continue on this, guys. I, I hope your faith is encouraging this. There's a purpose in all of this, is that no matter what we're doing for God, we have to go in there with this confident expectation that He will hold up His end of the bargain. That when He says, believers lay hands on the sick and recover, we don't do that, Lord, if it be Thy will. When He says that you call for the elders of the church and the prayer of faith will make them whole, we don't say, Lord, if it be Thy will. If you want to move on their behalf today, we need to begin to look at this in the same way that we approach God with everything else. If God really does meet my needs according to His riches and glory through His Son, Christ Jesus, if it's His will. The question is, is it His will? When he tells you to go lay hands on the sick, is it his will to heal? Otherwise, why are we doing that? If he says that pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, well, how can we know what his will so that we can pray it? We need to be able to know these things, and Scripture is our guide to that. We will stay inside the confines of that every single time. 